Let's turn in the scriptures to 1 Peter. Today I'm beginning a new study of actually three New Testament books that we will explore throughout much of the rest of the year. All of these books relate to Peter. It's Peter's first letter, Peter's second letter, and the gospel according to Mark, which according to ancient testimony was a summary of how Peter explained the gospel. All three of these books focus on how we need to testify of Jesus in our words, in what we say, and in our lives, in what we do. This first letter of Peter, the first book that we're studying, I expect that we'll be here for maybe 10 or 12 weeks, and uh, we're going to slow way down at a few points in uh, mid-May. We'll focus uh, especially on the beginning of of uh, 1 Peter 3, where he's discussing how to live in a difficult marriage, and we'll slow down as well in chapters 2 and 4 to talk about suffering and persecution and how the church should relate to an oppressive government. I point out those couple messages that we're going to slow way down. It's one of the reasons that we enter this study is because this book is very relevant for us right now. But uh, not just one or two of the messages are going to be relevant. Every single one of them is going to be relevant. How could they not be relevant when we are actually reading a letter from Jesus' lead disciple who ended up becoming a disciple maker himself, one of the best in church history? He died an expert disciple maker. In fact, his second letter, which he writes just before he dies, is a remarkable summary of what it means to follow Jesus and what it takes to follow Jesus. Every study in this series is going to be remarkably relevant and practical. How can it not be? Today, my goal is actually to read and explain the first 12 verses of of, uh, Peter's first letter. But just before we do it, I want to do something that may be a little bit interesting, maybe a little bit new to you. And I actually think to introduce the letter, one of the most helpful things to do is read the last paragraph, the very last paragraph of the letter. So you may have turned to the first page of the letter. Turn to the very last paragraph. This is 1 Peter 5, 12 through 14. And we're actually going to learn a little bit more about the letter from its conclusion. There are five introductory details that we learn in this. Let's read, starting in 1 Peter 5.12. By Silvanus, another name for Silas, a faithful brother as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who's at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. And then Peter's final sentence, peace to all of you who are in Christ. From this conclusion, again, we learn at least five critical details that help us understand the tone of the letter, the method in which it was written, the context in which it was written, even the the substance of the letter. Let me point out these details. The first one is Peter dictated the letter. He dictated the letter to Silas. The technical term for Silas would be an amanuensis. That is, Peter is dictating and he's writing down as he hears Peter speak the words. We might just simply say that's a secretary. 
he's receiving a dictation and writing it down. That's how the letter's being penned. It's fascinating. The second detail is that Peter's first letter explains the true grace of God. That's what he says at the end of verse 12. He says this whole letter is a description of God's grace, what it means to understand it, what it means to to live it out. Grace, of course, refers to something that is totally undeserved. It's kindness or goodness that is totally undeserved. And in fact, it's given when we deserve the exact opposite. That's grace. And Peter's saying, my whole letter is really a summation, a summary explanation of God's grace. Third, Peter wrote this letter around AD 64, the year 64, so about 30 years after Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension to heaven. He wrote it about 30 years after Jesus's, the, the main events of the gospel that Jesus worked there in Jerusalem, from the city of Babylon. Now, he's using Babylon figuratively. There's a church family there. He says, he says all of us in Babylon are, are greeting you. Now, Peter is not writing from modern-day Iraq. The city of Babylon had actually been destroyed several centuries earlier, first by Persia and then by Greece. It was decimated by this point. He's referring to it figuratively. The city he's writing from must be a secular, a very godless, a very anti-God kind of place. Most people agree, both scholars and historians, that he's probably writing from Rome probably writing from Rome, though it's not 100% certain. Peter's writing from Rome where a church exists, and, and he's writing to people, we'll find out, who are scattered throughout Turkey. Fourth detail, Peter was with Mark. As he wrote, he's with Mark, and he calls Mark my son. Hmm. It's clear from this statement that Peter and Mark were very close, that Peter was actually Mark's lead discipler. He was like his, his overseer, his manager, as Mark is learning how to be a Christian leader. And the fact that he says, Mark, my son, may indicate that Peter, back in Jerusalem, had led Mark to faith in Jesus. He had led Mark to become a follower of Jesus. Now, as I mentioned in my early comments in the introduction, there is strong evidence that the gospel according to Mark is actually how Peter would have explained the gospel. Mark must have heard this as he was closely associated with Peter dozens of times, maybe hundreds of times through his life. Peter would come into a new area and he would start talking about Jesus and the people around would basically interview him. So who's Jesus? Tell me. Who's Jesus? Why does it matter? The gospel according to Mark is how Peter would have answered the question. Let me tell you about Jesus. Here's where it begins. Mark chapter 1. And he walks all the way through Jesus' teachings, his miracles, his, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his command to spread the gospel throughout the world. Mark is actually recording Peter's explanation of the gospel. Lord willing, at the end of this year, the date I think is December the 11th, we're going to be hosting Pastor and dramatist, uh, Dr. Lonnie Polson. And he, from this stage, Lord willing, is going to be quoting in a dramatic presentation the entire gospel according to Mark. 
Lord willing, by that point, we'll have finished all of these studies in the first letter of Peter, the second letter of Peter, and the gospel according to Mark. And then we are going to hear Mark's record of Peter's explanation of the gospel. Can't wait for that time and uh, thrilled to, to announce it to you this past week. The last detail, the fifth detail that we learn from this conclusion is that Peter loved Christians like his own family. He says, greet one another with a kiss of love. He means, essentially, show family affection. And we often explain in our new members orientation that this needs to be expressed in culturally appropriate ways. I have been in church services in Moscow, Russia, in which men literally kiss each other on the lips. And I'm not going to do that here. Um, We wouldn't have very many members in the congregation. (laughs) I'm not particularly interested in doing it, and I did not participate in it in Russia. But when I greet my family members, my biological sisters and brothers, I express love. I usually give a hug. I sometimes give a kiss on the cheek to my mom or to my sisters. These are expressions of familial affection. And Peter says, that's what I want you to express really on my behalf when you gather. And this is one of the reasons. We actually explain this in our new members class. It's one of the reasons that when you come through these doors into this auditorium, We don't have people saying, shh, be quiet, it's a formal ceremony. It's why it feels a bit more like a family gathering. It feels a bit more like a family reunion, why you see people shaking hands and hugging and why you see people getting up and moving around and and hanging out a long time afterward. This isn't a, a sanctuary. This is like a family home. This is where the sanctuary meets. When the church gathers, we are the holy people of God. And when we meet, we communicate love for one another. We try to show family affection. It's not only critical for teaching us really how to behave when we're together, but the reason I bring this point up is to remember that when Peter writes what he writes, he's writing with familial affection. He's writing with a brotherly, a fatherly affection. Peter is writing to suffering believers, and some of these instructions that he gives, you might say, wow, this is harsh. And it's just critical when you get this detail to understand the tone in which he writes is one of a familial love. I think that's really critical. These five details really help understand, help us understand the tone, the method, the substance of what Peter writes. And I think it's critical for us now as we go back and read today's text in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Let's read it together. I'm going to stop one time in the middle of this reading to do some explanation. Peter writes, starting in the very first verse of the letter, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, and for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is where I want to stop and just reflect on the context a little bit more. Peter is writing to suffering believers who have basically been made refugees by the Roman Empire. In this way, he's very much like James, who wrote his letter. He's very much like the letter to the Hebrews, 
writing to people who've lost their homes, their livelihoods, they've been ostracized by their family, they've been kicked out, and they're living as refugees in another place. It's a bit like what we're hearing on the news constantly over the last few weeks, that there are millions of Ukrainian refugees being uprooted from their homes, forced to live in other territories. I just read that I think 100,000 are planning to come to the Cleveland area, which in the United States is the third most um, dense Ukrainian population in, in, in the U.S. Um, remarkable what's going on, devastating what's going on. It gives us a little, little understanding of the people to whom Peter is writing. Now, the difference between what's going on right now and what was going on in, in Peter's day is that the Ukrainians who are refugees today are, are being forced to leave because of their ethnicity. They're Ukrainians, not Russians. That's why they're leaving. The people to whom Peter was writing were people who had to leave their homes because of their faith, because of their Christianity. It's likely that the Roman emperor Claudius in the late 40s, when he was emperor in Rome, actually used the Christians who he deemed troublemakers He used them to colonize other areas of his empire. And the areas that are mentioned there in the first verse are all in modern-day Turkey. He would have used the Christians that he viewed as troublemakers to populate these colonies that he was trying to take over and he was trying to stabilize. These suffering Christians would have lived in modern-day Turkey, basically between the Aegean Sea on the the west and the, the Black Sea on the north, and, uh, and the, the Mediterranean on the south, and they would have lived in these regions. No one is actually certain how churches, which Peter actually refers to these people as being gathered in churches with elders in each church. He refers to them that way in chapter 5. No one knows how churches got planted all throughout these five regions. Paul only talks about being in two places in this entire region, this massive region. How did the gospel spread? I think this is one of the massive encouragements to a congregation like ours. The gospel didn't spread in this area through big-name evangelists. The gospel spread in this area through no-name Christians. And I think we at Tri-County need to be really, really encouraged by this, that God can use me and God can use us to spread the gospel forcefully in this region. It doesn't take big-name evangelists. It takes no-name evangelists to testify of Jesus main theme of these letters and the gospel according to Peter. We've got to know the gospel. We've got to pray for the Spirit to give us courage to share it. This fact demonstrates, this fact that Peter is writing to Jews that are gathered in churches or or Christians, probably many of them from a Jewish background, who are spread throughout these five regions, it shows the power of Christianity And I hope that everyone can relate with that word that Peter uses in verse 1 when he says, all of you in those regions of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, all of you are elect exiles. Think about that term, elect exiles. Hmm. I hope every one of us can relate, right? We should say something like, I'm an exile, My life is not what it should be. I'm living on a cursed planet. My life is far from ideal. I'm dealing with trials and circumstances that I wouldn't have picked for myself. 
I feel out of place. And, and even as I get older, I feel increasingly out of place. And yet I am loved by God. I am chosen by God. And I am in the exact circumstance that my loving God wants me to be in to bring him glory. I'm an elect exile living far away from my true home. It's to us, suffering elect exiles, that Peter's words come. Now pick up reading in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, your faith being more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you don't now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Hmm. I want to summarize what is going on here, but you have to realize that this is Trinitarian beginning to end. The way I would summarize what's going on here is God the Father has blessed us with unshakable hope. God the Son with indomitable joy. And God the Spirit with wonderful revelation. Thrilling revelation of what God is planning to do. I say what's going on here is Trinitarian or triune. That adjective is remarkable. It's triune. It's three in one. It means you are a triunity or a three in oneness. That's what's being described by these words trinity or triune or trinitarian. It's indicating the truth of how God revealed himself, and that is that he is one God, one and only one God, but that one God is three persons. In other words, God is the Father, God is the Son, and God is the Spirit. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, but that doesn't mean there are three gods. There is one God, three in one, triune. There is one God who has eternally existed in three persons. And Peter emphasizes the Trinity here at the beginning of his letter. Look at verse 2. That one verse is Trinitarian. He says, By God the Father, every Christian has been foreknown and selected to be a recipient of God's gracious salvation. Then he says, By God the Spirit, 
Every Christian has been set apart, sanctified, set apart as belonging specially to God. And then he says, by the death of God the Son, every believer has been cleansed from every stain of guilt that's on our record for our disobedience. God the Father has foreknown and loved us. God the Spirit has set us apart as belonging to to God. And God the Son has died for us so that we could be cleansed from our sin if we would obey him and follow him and commit our lives to him. That's Trinitarian. But the whole structure of the the paragraph we just read, verses 3 to 12, is also Trinitarian. Look at it. In verses 3, 4, and 5, he basically says God the Father is to be blessed in verse 3 because he's given us a hope. And then in verses 6 through 9, we're told that God the Son is the one that we are longing for and we're rejoicing in no matter what trials we're experiencing here. And then in verses 10, 11, and 12, he describes the Holy Spirit as working in the prophets to help them see the coming of Christ they didn't understand how what they were revealing mixed, how the, how the sufferings mixed with the glory. But the Holy Spirit has made it clear as he's revealed the gospel further, the gospel that's come to Peter's very own audience, the gospel that's come to us. We've been given a wonderful revelation because the Holy Spirit has made it known. Do you see that the entire structure of the thinking is Trinitarian? It's God in three persons, graciously working for us, graciously opening our eyes to the salvation that Jesus has worked. This is Trinitarian thinking. I want to work out each of these facets very briefly and practically, and then I want to conclude. There is thrilling grace from our triune God, which begins with this. Christian, you have an unshakable hope from God the Father. There in verse 3, Peter says, bless God, essentially for giving us hope. Our hope began when God, by his incredibly great mercy, caused us to be born again. Every person who has turned from their sin and personally trusted in Jesus, the resurrected Messiah, has been given new life by God. We are not the people we used to be. I quote 2 Corinthians 5. Those who become Christians become new persons. We're not the same anymore. The old has gone. The new life has begun. We've been born again. We've been given new life. And this newness explains why Christians get publicly dunked in water after they're converted. After they they trust Jesus. It's to testify The old is gone. It's dead. It's buried. The new life is here. You've been raised to walk a new kind of life. And Peter stresses that the result of God mercifully working in you to give you new life through the resurrection of Jesus is that you would live with an unshakable hope. New life leads to new hope. And the Bible's kind of hope, the word hope is not like a hope so kind of hope. It is a no-so kind of hope. It's a confidence. It's a certainty about the future that we are going to receive the inheritance of Jesus' kingdom. To work that out a little bit more, you say, what is our hope? It is that everyone who can call God our Father through Jesus, 
is going to be given an inheritance, and that inheritance is eternal life in glorified bodies on a perfected planet over which Jesus reigns, perfect government, unselfish citizens, the flourishing of culture through business and leisure like we've never seen, that is the inheritance that is a Christian solid hope, our confidence for the future. It's not a I hope so kind of hope. It is a, a confidence. It is a certainty about the future. God is keeping it for us and he's guarding us for it, Peter says. How should the first point affect you? Well, simply according to the first word of verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father. Some of you, I think, might need this today. When's the last time you explicitly, deliberately, with your mouth out loud, you personally chose to praise the Lord, to bless the Lord for the hope that's yours? See, we can kind of think about it. We can say, yeah, I know that. But when's the last time you blessed God your Father for the unshakable hope that he's promised you, that he's keeping you for? We need to obey this today and bless our Father God. The second point is, Christian, you suffer through trials with indomitable joy because of God the Son, because of Jesus Peter explains that our hope produces joy, and it is a joy that endures every trial. It's indomitable. He likens our trials to fire and our faith to gold. He likens our faith to gold. Gold that is refined in fire gets purified, and it gets more valuable. And for every Christian, trials actually prove our faith's genuineness, just like fire proves gold's genuineness. And fire improves the quality of our faith, just like fire improves the quality of gold. And, and trials actually increase the value of our faith to God, just like refined gold is more valuable than gold that still has impurities in it. This is what trials do. And Peter teaches that on the day of Jesus' return, our greatest joy and the best part of our inheritance will be to see Jesus and to experience his smile and his love. We will finally see the one we trust, the one we love. And that anticipation that we're going to see Jesus It fills us with inexpressible joy. He is the center of our hope. Even though we've never seen him, Peter says, we're going to see him soon. It's certain it's going to happen. Ed Hebert, one commentator on Peter, explains that for Christians, sadness and gladness exist side by side. Peter says, you are grieved by various trials, and yet you have a joy that cannot be taken away. No trial can take it away. It is just critical for us to realize that this is Christian experience. It's genuine Christian experience. Sadness and gladness exist side by side.
This means, very practically, Christian, don't try to suppress your grief over your losses, over your hardships. Don't ever think that crying is somehow less Christian. And on the other hand, don't ever let your grief be unmixed with joy. Don't give in to abject depression or despair. Never allow yourself to go that low and say, there's no hope for me anymore. It's not true. We should grieve, but we should always have joy mixed into our grief. Sadness and gladness exist side by side. Your greatest joy, which is being in the presence of your King, your Savior, forever and ever, it still awaits you. So rejoice even as you grieve today. The third and final aspect is in verses 10 to 12, where Peter basically says, Christian, you should live with a sense of privileged wonder over the revelation you've been given from God the Spirit. Peter reminds us that there were prophets before Jesus who wrote about the coming of Jesus, but they had no idea about how their prophecies all would work out. He's, of course, referring to prophets like Isaiah and Micah and Zechariah and Daniel and so forth. These prophets wrote, they received visions, the Holy Spirit would open their eyes and they would write out what he communicated to them. But they had no idea how it would all fit together. Peter himself, when he was standing in front of Jesus, had no idea how it would fit together. You may remember Matthew chapter 16 records this, where, where Peter is asked by Jesus, so Peter, who am I? And Peter said, you are God's chosen king to rule on this planet. And Jesus tells him, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my father revealed it to you. And then Jesus said, and let me tell you what the king, the king of this planet's going to do. He's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to be mocked and scorned and flogged. And, and then he's going to be crucified and raised three days later. And Peter looks at Jesus and he says, that will never happen to you. Peter, he knew the prophets. And he still didn't understand how the sufferings and the glory related. And Jesus looks at Peter at that point and he says, then get behind me, Satan. You're causing an offense. I'm going to have to trip over you on my way to the cross. Peter didn't understand how it related. It's actually not until Jesus is raised from the dead and he spends time explaining to his disciples what he's doing and then he ascends to heaven promising to return from there in great glory and his disciples go on to write about these things and that gospel gets communicated through people like Peter and James and John and so forth and it comes to the believers who are now scattered all throughout Asia Minor. And Peter writes to them and he says, do you realize what, what, what privilege is yours? What incredible, wondrous privilege is yours? Your privilege is greater than Isaiah's. He didn't understand how the sufferings and the glory related. Peter's implying, I didn't understand at one point. And Peter actually says, the last phrase of verse 12, the angels are jealous 
over what you guys understand. The angels long to, to understand actually what's going on in the gospel. It's incredible. Angels look with wonder at the, at the message that Christians understand because I've been given grace by the triune God and I am promised to be raised with Christ and to inherit the kingdom. Do you realize that God never created a plan by which to save angels, the angels who rebelled? There's no plan by which rebel angels can be redeemed. But God created a way for humans to be reconciled to him. And the angels scratch their heads and say, God the Son, the King, became a man and was crucified and he's going to reign on this planet and anyone who turns to him can actually inherit that hope? That's incredible! What a wonder! That's where Peter goes. He says, do you realize that you've been given unshakable hope from God the Father? Indomitable joy in God the Son? and wondrous revelation from God the Spirit. And he says, essentially, praise God. Now, I hope you see from Peter's introductory words that these are just jam-packed with reminders of what God has done for us. God chose us. God set us apart. God cleansed us. God made us born again. God has actually reshaped our lives, given us new lives. God has given us a hope. God has given us revelation. God has done this, and God has done that, and God has done that. I go back to the end, where Peter says, all I'm trying to do in this letter is explain the true grace of God. The true grace of God. Grace, grace, grace. That word is what sets true Christianity apart from every other religion on the planet. Grace. True grace. Every other religion on the planet basically tells people what you must do. What you must do in order to have a relationship with God. Hmm. Not the true grace of God. Not the true grace of God. It's not grace if you have to do something to get something. That's called earnings. It's not grace. Peter says, no, 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 no. I'm writing to you about true grace. This is like what God does. He does it all. It's grace. If you earn it, it's not true grace. I'm writing to you about true grace, right? According to true grace, we stop working and trying to earn a relationship with God, and we instead trust what God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit have done for us. That's the true grace of God. Every other religion basically says, try, try to change your life so that God will be gracious to you on the final day, or whatever definition of God there is. In true Christianity, we understand what the triune God has done for us, 
planning our salvation, accomplishing it, applying it to us, and we do nothing to earn it. We simply trust that what he's done is enough. We trust Jesus dying for our guilt then rising again. We trust that the Spirit actually works in our hearts to humble us and make us receptive to it. We trust, we rest in what God has done for us, right? This is true Christianity. My life changes not because I want God to accept me, not because I want a relationship with God in the end, but my life actually changes when I trust God and I actually, I actually realize that right now I have a secure relationship with him with unshakable hope and that drives change in my life. It's not because I'm hoping for a relationship with God. It's because I've been given a relationship with God. And you say, but, but that's totally undeserved. That's grace. But I deserve to be judged. No, Jesus was judged in your place. God planned that. That's grace. You say, but I've had such a hard, rebellious heart throughout my life. I haven't wanted God's authority. I would say, is the Spirit working in your heart? You say, how do I know? Are you willing to repent? Is God breaking your heart right now? Is he giving you a soft heart? Even that is God's work in you to make you turn and, and say, I'm sorry. And say, God, you've done it all. Have me. I'm undeserving. This is the true grace of God. If you have never, ever stopped trying to earn a relationship with God, I would say stop it today. Stop trying to earn it. That's not grace. Trust the grace you've been given by the triune God. Rest in it. And if you have a relationship with God through the grace of Jesus Christ, then I end where Peter's exhortation ends. Stand firm in it.